Here's the word of God, John chapter 9, verses 13 to 23. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man's not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he opened your eyes? He said, "Uh, He's a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know uh, who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age, ask him. Pray with me, friends. Lord, as we are here looking at your word, I just plead with you, open it to us. Let us see your goodness. Let us experience your glory. Let us have the joy of the Lord this day. We ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. And you can be seated. Who can tell me, in short summary form, what's the First Amendment to the Constitution? Who knows? Okay. Does everybody agree with Ben? There you go. Did you say Frisbee? It's all I heard. Free speech. Free speech. I get it. Frisbees. That is a different version of the Constitution. It's the New Living Constitution right there. The First Amendment amendment of the Constitution of the United States begins, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. There's more to it than that. But this, the first enumerated right in the Bill of Rights, demands that our government never declare any religion to be the official religion of the United States. Neither can the government legally forbid worship. Now, for some of you, when I just did that, it just took you back to high school, right? Because that's the last time you looked at the Constitution. But I will tell you that this amendment is very important to our daily lives. When the United States was founded, the fathers understood that it's possible for a government to turn against the freedom of religion. They knew from experience in England that a government might try to persecute people of faith in order to force them to submit to the whims of the people in power. And these men wanted to make sure that in this country, at least, people would be free to worship without persecution. Now, what makes this so outstanding historically is the fact that this is not the norm for human history. We like to assume that a person's right to worship or not to worship in accord with his conscience, that's always been sort of understood among the nations, but in point of fact, That kind of freedom is special. It's something we should not assume. 
Throughout history, people have been expelled from political office because of their faith. Some people have been arrested, had their property seized for their refusal to sign off on a religious document. Other people have been tortured, even killed for their faith. And those things are still happening on the world, in the world today. Now, I tell you this because I want you to see how gracious God has been to you. Very few of us have faced physical danger for our faith. Very few of us have been fired from a job because we love Jesus. Very few of us have gone through persecution. We live in a land where we've been free to worship and serve the Lord without fear. But do you think we can assume that that will always be the case? Things change, don't they? Governments change, societal morals change, and it's quite possible that our land could become a place where it is no longer easy to live as a believer. I think we can agree. If we look around, we see signs all over the place that following Jesus is becoming less popular among many people in our country. Would you think that's true? And if we're wise... We will prayerfully, diligently look to the word of God to see how it is we can survive in a land where following Jesus isn't easy. Because friends, while Jesus Christ will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it and Jesus will have victory, it doesn't mean he's promising you in your lifetime victory in your particular country. You know that? Last week, we watched as our sweet Savior healed a man who had been born blind that the sixth of John's seven signs, it's there to show us the glory of Jesus and help us believe in Jesus. But not everybody who learns about the sign is going to be eager to love Jesus and follow Jesus. The religious leaders are still looking for any reason they can come up with to come against Jesus. And not even the man who had been healed is going to be free from persecution. So we pick up the account I want you to keep in mind, first and foremost, that everything in this gospel is about Jesus, about the Savior, about His glory. But we can learn some things that apply to our daily lives in the here and now, too. Like the healed man, we will face skeptics. Like the healed man, we need to stand strong for Jesus. So today I want to give you six quick points to write down. Yes, I said six. You can write them all down. I believe in you. But we want to learn how to survive the skeptics, living in a world where people are becoming more and more hostile to the faith. And as we stand for Jesus, we can pray that the Lord will open for us opportunities to honor him by sharing the gospel. Maybe we'll even see some who start off skeptical suddenly become servants of the Savior. Point number one, if you're writing them down, expect questions. Expect questions. Verses 13 to 15 begin, They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. After Jesus healed the man of a congenital from birth blindness, the people who knew the man were amazed. Some questioned whether it was even the same healed guy. I mean, is that the blind guy? I don't think it's the blind guy. He can see. No, it's me. We had this discussion last week. And the man had to work to try to convince people that he really is the man who had once been blind but could now see. 
not sure what to do with that, the people brought the healed man to the Pharisees. Now, we have no reason to assume that there's any sort of nefarious motivation. The people just seem to want to know what to do. They want to ask the religious scholars, what should we make of this miracle? And then verse 14, John gives you a little side note that ought to ring out like an alarm bell in your brain. The day that Jesus made the mud and put it on the man's eyes, the day Jesus told the man to go wash, the day Jesus healed the blind beggar, was a Sabbath day. We've already seen back in chapter 5 that the Jewish religious establishment was really strict about how they want the people to behave on the Sabbath. We saw that Jesus told them back then that just like his father, just like God the Father has authority over all things, including the Sabbath, Jesus also has authority over all things, including the Sabbath. This mentioned in verse 14 should give us a warning that a conflict is about to commence. Verse 15, the religious leaders asked the formerly blind man what happened. They wanted to spell it out for him so they can decide what they should think. And before we hear the, blind, the formerly blind man's response, let's take note of something. If you know Jesus, things about your life are going to be different. Do you guys agree that that has to be true? If you know Jesus, something about you ought to be different. In fact, things you do and things you refuse to do will be very confusing to the world around you. The world will not understand your values. The world will not understand your hope. The world will not understand your disagreement with modern society's embrace of evil practices. And just like the religious leaders, they're going to have questions. Expect questions. If you want to stand in a hard world, expect questions. Don't be shocked if somebody looks at you and says to you, how could you possibly believe whatever? Don't be shocked if somebody asks you, do you really think? Don't be surprised. When people out there think that you're crazy or just can't begin to imagine, how can you live and think like you do? It will be much easier for you. It'll be much easier for you to endure if you start out expecting that a lost world will not understand. Only if God opens their hearts to Jesus will they truly grasp the ways of the Lord. So then point number two. You expect questions? Follow that with share a gospel testimony. Share a gospel testimony. There's going to be some details in this point that you can write down too. The end of verse 15. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see pretty good, don't you think? In response to the question, the man who had been healed gives three bits of data. Jesus put mud on his eyes. The man washed the mud off. Now the man who formerly could not see can see. So in very simple terms, this man who had been healed gives a very clear, simple, honest testimony about what happened to him. Praise be to Jesus. The Savior had in fact done a miracle and the blind man saw. This is a good place to stop and remember that when a skeptical world asks you about your faith, 
You have a great opportunity to bear witness. You have a fabulous chance to say to them, can I tell you my story? You would be surprised how many people in this odd culture in which we live actually love to hear people's stories. So we can learn from the man's little testimony, what does it look like to share a gospel testimony? The man gives us three things. I'm going to give you four things, little subpoints here, four things that need to be present if you are going to share a gospel testimony. Four things. To share a gospel testimony, you want to tell them who you were, what Jesus did, how you received it, and how things have changed. So you start off by telling them who you were. In the case of the healed man, the crowd had already established for the Pharisees who he had been. He had been blind. Now he can see, right? He had, that's who he was. Who, who, who was he? He was the blind guy. When you tell your story, you need to tell people how you used to be lost. You were outside of the grace of God. You were destined for judgment. You might read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. That'll summarize who you used to be before you met Jesus. The formerly blind man told the religious leaders what Jesus did. He put mud on my eyes. That was the act of Jesus. When you give a gospel witness, you too need to tell people what Jesus did. But in your case, you've got a lot more to say than stuff about mud. You can tell people that Jesus lived a perfect life before God. And then died as a sacrifice for your sins. Jesus rose from the grave and invited you to come to him in faith to find forgiveness. If you already read Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, you could read Ephesians 2, verses 4 to 7. The man next told the Jews what he did in response to what Jesus did. He washed just as Jesus told him to wash. When you share a gospel witness... You've got the opportunity to tell others how you responded. Now, little side note, don't get all hung up in sharing a gospel testimony in trying to unpack the depth and mysteries of the doctrine of election and predestination. It didn't have to be in every conversation you have. You know that, right? I love you, Calvinists, but calm down. I am one too, but it didn't have to be everywhere. What you can do when you're telling your story is tell your experience. Because I guarantee you, when you got saved, understanding the intricacies of predestination was not the first thing on your mind. Tell them what? That you saw your great need for forgiveness. That you believed in Jesus. That you asked Jesus, Lord Jesus, please save me. Maybe you can tell them about the church service you were in when it became clear. Or the kindly relative, the family member who prayed with you and helped you ask Jesus to be your Savior. But tell the people who are listening to your story that you believed and entrusted your entire eternity to Jesus, receiving forgiveness by grace through faith. That, by the way, would take you to Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. Finally, the man told the leaders how he had changed. He used to not be able to see, now he can. And when we give a, a testimony about Jesus, 
We need to let people know that though we're not yet perfect in our actions, we're forgiven and we're adopted into the family of God. We can tell people how God has already given us joy in Christ. We can point out that we have surrendered to Jesus' lordship, wrestling by the power of the Spirit of God to grow more into the likeness of Jesus every day. Or as Ephesians 2.10 says, we can tell them that we're now trying to honor the Savior by doing the good works he prepared beforehand, before he ever created the universe. Can I tell you my story? I once was lost. I didn't even know it at first. I thought I was smart and funny and I thought I was the center of my own universe. I wasn't as bad as I could have been but I definitely wasn't going to meet the standard of God's perfection. Then I found out about Jesus. I mean, I heard about Jesus all through my life. There were church people around me. I even knew Jesus died on the cross. But there came a day and a time when I really understood that the reason Jesus died was to pay the price for the wrong stuff I had done. Jesus never did anything wrong ever. But Jesus died to save me. And Jesus rose from the grave because he's he's perfect and he's holy and he's almighty. He's God in the flesh. The Bible told me everybody who believes in Jesus would not perish but have everlasting life. Well, I wanted to be forgiven. I knew that I could not be good enough to force my way into heaven. I had learned that you don't go to heaven by being good. So in response to God, I prayed. I admitted my sin. I I, I said to God, I need to be forgiven. I I confessed that I believed in Jesus. I asked him, please save me. And he did. Ever since then, I can't say that I've been perfect. I won't be perfect during this lifetime. But God's working in me. God is changing me. And I find that as the years go by, I do have more and more joy and meaning and purpose in life as I live to follow the God who made me and who saved me. The Bible tells me that in the eyes of God, he gave me the perfection of Jesus when he saved me. And even though I still fail more often than I would ever want, God has forgiven me. And he didn't forgive me because I was good. He forgave me because of Jesus and because of his love. And I promise you that this forgiveness and this love is better than anything in the whole wide world. That's my story. If you're a Christian, something a lot like that is your story. True? I mean, does that sound a little bit like your story? Maybe a different time in your life when you learned about Jesus, but who you were, what Jesus did, how you received it, that things are different, that's your story, Christian. We live in a skeptical world. We live among folks who do not understand us. We live among folks who might even want to argue with us. They want to argue with us about morality or science or history. And sometimes the best way for you to get a word in edgewise and get them to hear you is for you, with prayer and scripture, to share a gospel testimony who you were, what Jesus did, how you received grace, what's different now. I can't promise you that everybody who hears your story will receive it well, 
but it's a great way for you to get the gospel in front of others because they will give you permission to tell your story. Third point, expect disagreement about Jesus. Expect disagreement about Jesus. Did you you write that down? Just checking. Okay, verse 16. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who's a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. Told you not everybody's going to respond well to your story, right? In fact, the religious leaders who heard the healed man's story, they themselves were divided. By the way, at this point, they're not arguing about whether or not the man who had been blind or not. They weren't arguing about whether he could see. Now the discussion turns to the person and the character of Jesus. The religious leaders divide into two groups. One group says Jesus can't be from God since he is, in their opinion, in violation of the Sabbath regulations for healing the man. The other group believe that Jesus must be on God's side because they can't imagine such a miracle performed by somebody who's not from God. In actuality, both of these groups have some faulty reasoning. The group that opposes Jesus is doing so based on moralism. You guys ever hear the word moralism before? Moralism is a kind of legalism where we make up rules that are stricter than God's commands and then try to apply them to other people. You ever do that before? We project our morality on them as if God's word is not good enough. As an example, earlier this morning, I let Anthony know that if he did not believe that Fox in Socks is the best Dr. Seuss book, he is wrong potentially in sin. That might have been moralistic on my part. It was correct, but moralistic. In Jesus' day, the Jewish establishment had developed some pretty radical ideas about what must be restricted on the Sabbath day. It's hard to even say which rule they think Jesus broke. And here's an example of what some people think. They, They say, okay, work was forbidden on the Sabbath, And the Jews were clear to outlaw kneading dough on the Sabbath. Well, since Jesus spat on the mud and made mud by mixing the dirt with his spit, maybe that was considered kneading, thus work, thus Sabbath breaking. Does that seem nuts to you? Let me remind you the actual command regarding the Sabbath in the Ten Commandments, the basic summary terms of God's covenant with national Israel. Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but, all, but the seventh is a, is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. This command told the Jews, keep the Sabbath day, not doing your normal work so that they could remember that God is the sovereign creator who brought the world into existence in six literal days. 
In Deuteronomy 5, 12 to 15, the parallel, it commanded this, the Sabbath observance so that servants could rest so that all the people of Israel could remember how God led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. But neither of those commands would make you think it was somehow inappropriate to do another person life-changing good on the Sabbath. The commands were about refraining from normal work, from occupational work, in order to take time to rest and remember the Lord, the Lord's great deeds. Sadly, the Jews, by the time of Jesus' day, had completely warped God's command to keep the Sabbath. They had added rule after rule after rule to define what is and isn't work. And when Jesus didn't do things in their way, not Scripture's way, but their way, they got mad. One kind of skeptic that we're going to face in the world we live in, friends, is the person who rejects the Savior because Jesus doesn't fit their picture of what God is supposed to do. Many people out there have made up in their own minds what God ought to be like. And they'll tell you, oh, the God that I believe in would never require this. You ever hear something like that? The God that I serve would never forbid such and so. Listen to me and remember it, please. Whenever somebody tells you outside of Scripture what God would or wouldn't do, they're telling you about themselves far more than they're telling you about God. They have a God and a set of standards of their own making. And they will disagree with you and everybody else who doesn't agree with them and their made-up God. Now, real quick, the other form of faulty reasoning I want to show you is that while the other group ends up right about Jesus, Jesus is from God, they get there with weak reasoning. They assume that any supernatural act is absolute proof. And while the healing of the blind man shows us the glory of Jesus, we need to be cautious not to become overly fascinated with the miraculous or the unexplainable. Why would I say this? First of all, miraculous things in our world can be faked. So be careful not to get yourself all caught up in someone that tells you a story that gives you the heebie-jeebies. But what if something supernatural really takes place? Does that prove it's godly? Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 through 3, read as follows. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, listen closely, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. God warned the people of Israel that not every miracle, not every word of a prophet that comes true is proof that the person is good. Only a person who leads you toward God with the scriptures is trustworthily from God. 
So basing your beliefs only on the amazing without basing them on right handling of Scripture is very dangerous. Like I said, the world's going to have disagreements with you, with other people about Jesus. They're going to make up their own rules. They're going to make up their own God. They're going to get caught up in speculations. What should you do? Point number four, side with Jesus. Didn't that sound like a good idea? Side with Jesus. Verse 17 So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he's a prophet. The big time religious scholars, they get so frustrated with each other that they turn to the healed man to ask his opinion, which is kind of funny because they don't care about his opinion. You'll see that in in the coming verses. But in his response, there's something sweet. The formerly blind man, not yet saved by the way, he sides with Jesus. From everything he can tell about Jesus, given his limited exposure to Jesus, the formerly blind man calls Jesus a prophet. He thinks Jesus is a man sent from God to give us the truth. You know what? He's kind of right. He's really close. He's not all the way there yet, but he's getting there. You feel it, right? But do you think we could learn from this guy anyway? When he was faced with people arguing about the word and the ways of God, the man just sided with Jesus. When people tried to get nitpicky about the Sabbath regulations, he just affirmed Jesus. And when you have people out there try to argue with you about all sorts of political issues and ethical dilemmas that they make up, you know what you should do? Side with Jesus. In fact, you might ask people who pose questions about irrelevant things what their questions have to do with the identity of Jesus. I remember being on the streets preaching the gospel with some friends of mine. We were in New Orleans, actually. And a friend of mine just started using this line and it was so interesting to watch people respond to him. He would stand on the street corner. He would pass out gospel tracts. He would get into conversations. And oh, people wanted to get in his face about issues, politics, sexuality issues. Um, I remember really clearly people wanted to argue about the Crusades for some reason, which is a fascinating point to be on the streets in New Orleans. And finally, my friend started saying to them, listen, I hear what you're saying, but I have a question for you. What does your question have to do with Jesus? What has it got to do with you and Jesus? Because you see, whether it's okay for a person to drink alcohol for, uh, without being drunk or not has nothing to do with you and Jesus. Whether it was okay or not for people in the Old Testament to marry more than one woman has nothing to do with you and Jesus. Whether the Crusades were right or wrong has nothing to do with you and Jesus. Tell me, what about Jesus? See, the bottom line, the bottom line question that everybody needs to answer is not about voting or health care or gun control. Maybe they're important questions. But there's something far more important. Who is Jesus? Do you know Jesus? 
Side with Jesus, friends, in these discussions. Point people to Jesus. That's going to help in a very skeptical world. Fifth point. Expect rejection. Expect rejection. Verses 18 to 21. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, I do not, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. So the Jews bring in the parents. They want to be sure that this guy really was born blind, that they're not being tricked. The parents, for their part, are willing to say that, yes, this man is their son, and that he, yes, indeed, was born blind, but they're not willing to weigh in as to how he now sees. And this is a sad moment because the parents are turning against their son. They tell the Jews he's of age. He's 13. He's grown. He's over 13. Tell the religious leaders, don't ask us. Because they don't want to have anything to do with whatever his answer is going to be. In a very real sense, they throw their son under the bus, telling him to fend for himself regarding the Pharisees. Folks, when you become a Christian, you may well experience the same thing. You may experience family members or close friends turning against you because of your faith. I remember having family members make jokes about me as a televangelist. I did not have a television program, by the way, just so you know, so it wasn't accurate. I remember overhearing family members say, this is just a phase he's going through. I can't tell you that it won't hurt you when friends or family members turn against you. But I can tell you, don't be surprised. Expect to suffer hardships and rejection as a Christian. They will come. Your Savior was rejected by family and his own people. You don't do yourself any good by thinking you, if you follow Jesus, won't suffer similar stuff. But lastly, sixth point, stand with Jesus. Expect rejection, yes, but stand with Jesus. Look at the last verses here. We'll wrap this section up. His parents said these things. Look at the, re- look at the reasoning behind the parents. Because they feared the Jews, be- for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So maybe you think I was being hard on the parents or misreading the parents, but you can see it right here. They knew what happened to their son. They just didn't want to say so because they knew that siding with Jesus, standing for Jesus, would cause them to be put out of their synagogue, out of their community, out of their social circle. They did not want to deal with the hardship and the humiliation, so they cowered. So here, the last learning point I want to give you is don't be like the man's parents, Christians. Stand with Jesus. Why? Because it's worth it. Jesus is worth it, wouldn't you agree? I want you to hear the Apostle Paul's word about suffering hardships for Jesus in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 to 18. 
Listen. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. If you will not stand with Jesus, you show that you don't know Jesus. That leads to great sorrow and loss. But those who do know Jesus also know that the sufferings of this life are but a light, momentary affliction in comparison to forever. And our God has promised us that he will reward us so greatly in his love that our worst sufferings in this life will only have the weight of a feather in comparison to a massive boulder's weight of glory awaiting us in eternity. Stand with Jesus, because the eternal reward is infinitely greater than any minuscule hardship that you or I might face, even if they beat us or starve us or torture us or kill us. The infinite weight of eternal glory far overshadows anything that the evil can do to us in the here and now. All right, we've got to stop here. And I promise you the sermon's not done. We're just pausing for a week. I planned it that way. There's a lot more to see in this encounter with the formerly blind man and the religious leaders. It's going to get more interesting. But for now, Christians, expect questions, share a gospel testimony, expect disagreement, side with Jesus, expect rejection, stand for Jesus. And if you don't know Jesus and you're hearing me, let me tell you, he's very good. He's God in the flesh. He brings life and grace to everyone who comes to him in faith. He died to pay for the sins of those who trusted him. He rose from the grave, conquered death, and he's alive today. He invites you. Turn from your sin. Turn from yourself. Come to Jesus in faith. Repent, believe, and be saved. Forever with the Savior is totally worth it. Let's pray together. Lord, I am Super grateful for the chance to open your word here today. And I'm grateful that following Jesus is worth it. My prayer, Lord, is that you will help me to truly live in the light of the grace of Christ. I don't think for a minute that I earn goodness by living in the light of Christ's faithfulness. But I do believe, Lord, that you give joy to those who love you and who know you. So God, I pray that you'll help me and everyone in this congregation to know you well, to love you more, to be faithful. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.